Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My guest, Bob Wilson, will tell us about the changes in the West that reshaped the social construct between the sexes and exposes the feminist movement as the big fake, which was a top-down psyop that was planned and executed at the highest levels. So are we going down a path we can't reverse, or will we learn a serious lesson and get back on nature's track? So welcome, Bob. Thanks very much, Lana. Great to be here. Yeah, good to have you here. I enjoyed your book. I definitely recommend it. I think our audience would especially like it. And it's good also for the newbies that need a crash course (laughs) to be (laughs) war on the sexes and really why it's been orchestrated and who is doing it. But I think since you're new to everyone, maybe you can provide a little uh, background info about yourself and anything you'd like to share. Sure. Well, my career was in research and statistics. I retired early and moved from Canada to Europe a few years ago. So part of my skill set is finding patterns, connecting dots. And I decided to put those skills to use when I wrote this book, uh, which is about the origins of feminism. Recognizing patterns, right? Uh, And recognizing patterns is now racist, sexist, homophobic. anti-Semitic and all this, you know, but we go where the truth takes us. Now, you use a couple terms in the book, um, female and male building blocks uh, throughout the book. So why don't we just kind of discuss what that means? What is that? Yeah, so I I wanted to make a conscious effort to um, come up with some terms that would reinforce the theme that I'm talking about, which is that the sexes are two halves of a whole. So you've got the male building block, MBB, and female building block, FBB, which are complementary opposites. Um, The MBB and FBB building blocks form a pair bond. The masculine attracts the feminine, and they bond together. These pair bonds are the basis for families and the foundation for societies. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk about what happens when they're out of whack. But I think a good place to begin is let's discuss really the duality of male and female and how it is at the core of everything before we talk. I guess we have to define what that is before we can talk about how it's been destroyed and why that's a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's in nearly every culture. Uh, In the Bible, you've got Adam and Eve. They were the first pair bond. They had offspring who pair bonded and created the first society. Then in the East, you've got concepts like yin and yang. So yin is the inward, the dark, and the feminine. Yang is outward, bright, and masculine. Either one by itself is out of balance. But together, they create balance, stability, and harmony. So this male-female duality is really at the core of what we are. And it doesn't matter what part of the world you're in. And we don't mean hermaphrodites because i feel like sometimes people <laughs> take that way too far and we'll get into the trans stuff a little later but uh, oh but these gods they had both male and female so we're just embracing uh, what the gods have done you know but it's not literal we can have both male and female within us but it doesn't mean that we have breasts and balls <laughs> right. right yeah so tell us about the german philosopher schopenhauer's insights into uh, human nature regarding the sexes and differences i found that pretty interesting in the book Yeah, so Schopenhauer basically said that um, in the family unit, the wife and the mother is the giver of life, she's the guardian of children, and she's the companion to the husband. He also pointed out her shortcomings, which include things like relying on cunning to get what she wants, because she can't physically compete with her husband. 
Um, this is why your local bookstore probably doesn't carry Schopenhauer. Yeah, exactly. Why? <laughs> because it's, uh, it's sexist to talk about these things? Yeah, it's totally politically incorrect. Now, did he give any insights into uh, male traits? I mean, we know what those are, but I'm just curious if he did. Uh, no, actually, this essay that I'm referring to is called On Women. And uh, he specifically talked about um, FBBs, as I call them. So uh, that was the focus of the um, essay. Well, forever, men have been trying to figure out the minds of women. <laughs> so I guess that makes sense <laughs> that he focused on that. And I always like to say, too, that men built civilization for women, which is the ultimate compliment. You know, they love you. They want to have babies with you. They want to provide for you. They want to protect for you, protect you and what can be better than that? Well, men and women appear to have uh, more freedom today than ever, but they're more miserable than ever, and something has gone terribly wrong. And your conclusion is that many of the problems we face today wouldn't have developed had the true male-female bond been as strong as, uh, you know, 100 years ago. You say that female nature is vital to deciphering the machinations that have wrought havoc on male and the male and female bond over the last 100 years. Now, can you explain? Yeah. Um, so having a balanced pair bond creates a strong society. When you have one male building block for every female building block, nobody is left out. And that's what we call monogamy. Then you put these pair bonds together, they make families. Then you've got a family environment. And if it's with two heterosexual parents, then it's possible to raise healthy children because each child has a role model, whether it's the son or daughter. The children get to see how their parents work together to keep the family strong. And also a healthy family is less dependent on the state. How would you say that builds a, a, a healthy society, having the, the male and female balance? How does that create because, a, a strong nation? Because they're both playing to their strengths. Um, they're not trying to compete with one another. They're complementary halves of a whole. And this is something that we've really lost sight of over the past century or so. We've gotten to the point where FBBs and MBBs are in competition with one another. So it's a self-defeating paradigm and it just doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. You have to, it has to be teamwork, not uh, fighting against each other. Well, women yeah. have also become more uh, self-seeking than self-sacrificing. Of course, this is part of the uh, feminist movement. They've adopted more of a, a male mindset, as we see. And it's been the transformation of the female psyche becoming more masculine, masculinized, which has happened over generations. So let's talk about the events that have contributed to our change, because it's, it's quite a bit. But I know that you get into this in the book. I guess uh, the big ones really are with uh, the introduction of feminism, you started with uh, the sexual revolution, the pill, um, the entry of FBBs into the workforce. So instead of staying at home and raising the children, they're now going into the office along with their husbands and they're competing for their husband's jobs. So what I just mentioned earlier about being complementary versus, um, I guess, antagonistic, uh, as soon as they entered the workforce, uh, they became competitors as opposed to um, complementary parts of a whole. 
Yeah, and then we also had, of course, you had the suffragettes, uh, the sexual liberation, uh, a lot of propaganda. Remember, they were pushing cancer sticks and women were buying that. Uh, <laughs> the cigarettes, yeah. the cancer sticks, uh, pr- promoting it as, as something sexy and amazing. And a lot of women, they, they fell for that, right? So I would say propaganda has been a huge one as well as education, which in turn has uh, warned on the ward on the family. Um, what can you tell us about uh, propaganda? I know you wrote about the cancer sticks as, a, <laughs> as an example. Yeah. Um, that was one of the early examples of what I call um, setting the uh, the tone for feminism. So not only was it about sexual liberation and uh, getting FBBs into the workforce, it was also about changing their appearance, making them more masculine. So I think you know we can agree that smoking has always been a masculine thing more than feminine, and it was only in the last hundred years that that changed. So they put together these. Um, campaigns ad campaigns i think it was starting in new york and um they hired a bunch of models to go and smoke and then they photographed them and the whole intention was to make this cool you know for the ladies to all start smoking but the bottom line is it's kind of a a nasty habit i mean it stains your teeth gives you bad breath it's not what you would call traditionally feminine And that was the first in many um, very subtle changes in fashion and style that we saw over the last century. After that, um, you know, in the 70s, you started getting the short haircuts on girls. Uh, You started getting these big, ugly nerd glasses that they all started wearing. Um, And then you got tattoos and piercings later. Classy, looking good. (laughs) And yeah, it's interesting how they're marketing cigarettes to women because feminism has really turned into consumerism, as you point out in the book. So it's it's helping all these male oppressors get even richer, right? Uh, I'd say to me, the real male oppressor here is the one who helped push feminism on women to begin with. But what can you say about the consumerism aspect? Because that's really what it turned into pretty quick, right? It did. Um, So the ironic thing is that um, by getting the FBBs to enter the workforce, they actually um, ended up feeding the pockets of their so-called male oppressors because uh, most of these uh, oppressors are in fact men. And um, unbeknownst to these feminists, the more they go and build up their career and get higher salaries, the more they go and spend it, at companies which are owned by these, you know, men that they're supposedly fighting. So it's a big irony. Now, there are some conservatives that will say, well, first wave feminism wasn't so bad and, uh, you know, the right to vote and all that. Now, I, I know that that's garbage. I preferred uh, households, families. Voting is a household, right? Um, so a woman did have a say with her husband. And I think there should be voting restrictions today, personally, because <laughs> not everyone should get to vote. But what do you think? What would you say to the conservative that says uh, first wave feminism, uh, that's not so bad? Well, in many ways, the female vote was uh, something that that catapulted everything into action. In and of itself, it was not a bad thing at the time, because as you mentioned, it was a family vote and wives always voted along with their husbands. And it just strengthened the husband's, um, you know, vote. And what happened later, though, was um, when families started to disintegrate, you no longer had that dynamic in play. And then the female vote became independent. And at the same time, um, females sort of got more liberal 
gradually as the century went on, um, the 1900s. So it's funny because a hundred years ago, um, the wives were actually more conservative than their husbands. And it was only recently that um, liberalism has become associated with, um, with femininity. It didn't used to be. So it was kind of a ticking time bomb, the female vote. Um, by itself, not a bad thing. But later on is when it really um, ended up taking effect on actual outcomes. So what do you think about the men's mentality then at the time? Were a lot of men behind this first wave feminism? And later on, we'll talk about the elites that were really pushing it. Because it really was you mm. know, upper classes that always pushed these kinds of movements, not the uh, lower and middle classes. They're too busy just working and trying to survive. But what do you think mm. about the male mentality that was supportive of this at that time? Uh, so you're talking about a hundred years ago when yeah, it all started. Yeah, a hundred years ago. You think most men were like, "Yeah, let's get get behind that uh, the the right to vote." <laughs> what do you think most guys were thinking back then? I, I think at that time they didn't give it a second thought. They probably thought it was something cute that their wives could pursue for fun, just like you know taking up macrame. And I don't think they thought about the long term implications. They probably had no idea where it was heading, and. To be fair, how could they, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How could but, you possibly but, predict? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think they really gave it a second thought. Yeah. I think they were just good guys. I mean, guys are, mm-hmm. men are so demonized back then, 100 years ago, but they actually were uh, kind and gentle and not the uh, monsters they always portray them to be in all these TV shows and stuff. Like, they didn't want these women to take part in anything and they didn't let them have any extracurricular activities and it was slavery. That's all lies <laughs> and it's all propaganda, right? We're still talking about our own ancestors here, for crying out loud. But men, yeah. they also play a part, of course. Uh, so I wanted to talk about just the modern millennial uh, male building block as you say and uh, how the feminist perversion kind of got into the the male psyche because a lot of these millennials are very feminized right they are yeah i remember um it started with the snag uh which is um sensitive new age guy (laughs) (laughs) and uh, that term came out i think sometime in the 80s and it was actually a standard that that guys thought they should aspire to you know they thought oh there's something wrong with the John Wayne, Clint Eastwood paradigm of masculinity that we need to be more sensitive and get in touch with our feminine sides. So that was, um, you know, another part of the big fake really was um, instilling this propaganda into the minds of millennials. And um, like most social trends, they just assume it's something they should go along with. They don't think about it a lot. They think this is cool. This is what we should be doing now. So they do it. Yeah, and a lot of women, and especially feminists, they resent these guys that become feminized, right? So they, mm-hmm. they say, okay, I'll become a feminist then, and a lot of them probably do it just to just to get the women, you know? But then they're yeah. actually turned off by them. It's like they, they resent them for being these kind of uh, soy boy uh, beta males, right? <laughs> yeah, I talk about that in my book, too. Um, so any male feminist is essentially being a hypocrite because... Um, Anyone he's trying to hook up with knows deep down that the only reason he's faking this is because he wants a chance with her. So she knows he's being insincere. Um, It's just a ploy and she can see right through it. And he doesn't realize this. He, He tries to convince himself that this is something that's great for both sexes. And maybe he doesn't think it through at all, but, um, 
ultimately it's it's just hypocrisy. Yes, it is. Now, what about uh, you? Also, write about these beta daddies. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Term yeah, before, but uh, I'm surprised they're they're having children to begin with. But beta daddies, how they're contributing to the creation of this uh, modern female, and I guess they're spoiling girls. Something about that. They are so a beta daddy is um, someone who spoils his daughter, and what happens? It's an interesting dynamic. Um, Beta means that when he was back in his dating days, he didn't get all the girls. And um, that left an impression, let's say, on his psyche later. And then when he has a daughter, his daughter sees him as an alpha male. Um, he is the first man in her life, and he becomes the gold standard, I guess you could say, for men. So he's flattered by this because it's the first time he's put in this alpha role and he doesn't really know how to handle it. So it kind of fries his brain a little bit. And um, what happens is he stops being a dad and he stops setting boundaries for his daughter and he stops, you know, telling her no. He lets her get away with whatever she wants. And, you know, the end result is that we have a lot of uh, spoiled daughters. And then she'll grow up and then she'll be attracted to somebody like her father. That's what that's what we're told, right? So then maybe she'll go for mm -hmm. one of these uh, beta males. Well, hopefully, though, she'll go with the complete opposite and look for a more uh, masculinized man, which now we're being told that that is right-wing extremism. You know, gym bros <laughs> and being fit is, is fascist and it's hilarious, right? Basically, being sexy is fascist now. Attracting women is fascist now. It's like, okay, so be it then. Well, let's cover this uh, the war on boys at a young age. It's funny because my best friend was just talking about this with me about this false label of ADHD that's uh, given specifically to boys and how boys are not allowed to just be boys. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that the school system has essentially made boys into second class students. Um, the whole system is set up for the benefit of girls. You're supposed to sit quietly in a classroom and not move for several hours a day. And that's pretty much the antithesis of what a boy is looking for, especially a young boy. He wants to get out and play ball or at least go for a run, you know, do physical stuff. And he's not allowed to do that in school. The other problem is that most of the teachers now are all female. And um, to them, it's just a chore putting up with these boys. They would rather just make them into girls if they could, it's just less work. So they um, take the rambunctious ones and send them down to the school nurse for their shot, you know, and then they come back uh, all doped up and uh, a little more girly. Yeah, they're drugging them, which is horrible. I mean, I'm a mother of boys. And I know how wild they are compared to my friends I see with with little girls. And that's just boys. You know, they need to get that out. They need to pound each other and fight and be rowdy. And, and that's all healthy and it's all part of the development. But now we just medicate them, especially in America. I don't know how it is in other parts of Europe, but maybe some of the liberal places are the worst about that. But let's talk about the gaying, <laughs> the gaying of pop culture. Um, you know, on the flip side, you had the the 80s, right, of feminizing men. So let's talk about this impact. I mean, because we saw in the 80s, I like a lot of 80s music, but you turn it on. It's like, man, that guy looks pretty gay, even though he's he's straight, you know, but he's yeah. wearing all this makeup and stuff, which is disturbing. Like, I don't want my kids to see that. Like, why is this guy wearing, even though I might like this, the song or whatever, like it looked pretty gay. So what, what was happening there? <laughs> well, I can 
speak from firsthand experience. I used to play in a band and um, I remember seeing bands like Duran Duran and Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark and Human League. Yeah. And all the guys were wearing lipstick and makeup and, and they spent more time in front of the mirror than their girlfriends probably did. And we were influenced by these guys. And I remember one time we had this concert and uh, I was getting ready and I was, you know, picking out what I was going to wear. And I was thinking, oh, this just isn't flamboyant enough. I need some, you know, really uh, shocking colors here and I need to get my hair so it's standing way up here, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like all my favorite bands. And um, it wasn't until much later that, that I realized this, but it seemed like the majority or at least a good chunk of these musicians were advertised as being gay or bi or both. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it was a little hard to believe. Um, so in my book, I mentioned Pete Shelley. He was the lead singer for the Buzzcocks. They were a British punk band. And um, he may have been gay or bi, I don't know. But I do know that for a fact, he was married twice, both times to a lady. And uh, he died a happily married man. Hmm. So it, it makes you wonder, like, was this all some big publicity stunt? Were they trying to equate gayness with artistic talent? Mm -hmm. And looking back on it, you know, it, it really raises a lot of uh, questions. Yeah, David Bowie, too, right? I mean, he was married to a woman, that black model, right, for many years. But I, yeah. I remember he was, he was bisexual. Well, didn't he say that he was bisexual? I think I he did. I yeah. Remember. Yeah. I mean, there was a big bisexual gay trend that really started coming out in the 80s. And now we see it today. You know, someone just comes out. Uh, now it's trans. It's even a step farther. Uh, now, yeah. And now they're like celebrated like they're this hero, which why? At least back in the 80s, though, they weren't taking um, hormone blockers and cutting their balls off. Right. I mean, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, now it's just like, it's hardcore. It's just yeah. just when you think it can't get any worse. This is what we call the slippery slope, right? And now it's just like a slippery cliff. So let's also talk about dating today. I know Tinder is kind of normalizing this um, sex without love kind of dating. And we can talk about the, the impacts of that. Yeah. So the problem with Tinder is that it effectively takes the relationship part out of it and it completely replaces it with the pursuit of pleasure. It's all about sex now. And the other problem with it is that it makes it so easy. It's like organizing a tennis match. Um, you don't need social skills anymore. You just have to know how to swipe on your phone. So um, we're not only losing the value of learning how to develop relationships, we're also losing the um, the skills that are needed, or at least used to be needed, to approach a girl, chat her up, and go on a date. You know, you just don't have to do this stuff anymore. It's considered hard work. So where does that put us a few years down the road? It, um, less communication, fewer real conversations, everything is an app, everything is on your phone, and um, there's no more human element. 
Oh, I already see that today with a lot of the young boys. They don't know how to go ask a girl out. I mean, in my day, you know, they would just come up to you and they see you. They they ask you out on a date, right? Now it's like mm-hmm. they send these cryptic text messages and it's all these games and they're all socially awkward. And that's the that's the whole other level of technology. I mean, great. The Internet can be great to connect with people across the world. I mean, I married a Swedish man, right? That's made possible by the Internet. But we still had social skills and we still talked and we meet in person. And now it's just like, what do they call it? TikTok brain. It's just you know, and now it's also Tinder brain on top of that, right? So they're not focusing and actually getting to know people and trying to see if is this person really someone that I can be with? You know, they're instead they're checking out all their social media, looking over the shoulder all the time. It is that uh, ADD that I think's been completely programmed through technology and propaganda and stuff. But porn, that's the other one. You mentioned uh, Gary Wilson's TED Talk on the great porn experiment. I haven't actually heard that, but it does document the dangers of porn and how it's been weaponized. Even the Israeli forces, was it in uh, 2002, they shut down a Palestinian broadcasting station and they, and Henrik has mentioned this several times too, replaced it with programming of porn 24-7 because they know that it has some dangerous effects, right? So let's get into these dangers and how it's been weaponized yeah so the big thing about porn is that it actually reprograms the pleasure centers of the brain and it's most effective at doing this um, when someone is still younger so in your teens um, the brain is still psychologically malleable so a guy gets a hold of porn and um, it starts rearranging how his brain is wired the pleasure centers and the other thing it does is it um, it rewires them in such a way that uh, ordinary sex is no longer appealing to them. Because when you look at um, a lot of porn, it's kind of unnatural. It's a little bit weird, and it's hardly ever you know plain vanilla sex. It's it's always got some freaky component to it, right? <laughs> so guys get used to looking at this stuff, and um, that's what they come to expect, and then. When they go out with a girl and get her in bed, they're actually disappointed because it doesn't match up with their virtual porn experience. And the other thing that porn does is um, it puts all the emphasis on sight and sound, well, mainly sight, but also sound. Whereas when you think about uh, a couple making love, it's not just sight and sound, there's touch and there's smell, there's other senses involved, and there's communication, which is maybe the most critical of all, you know, talking to each other, that's completely removed uh, when you're watching porn. Yep. And now it's just accessible to young kids uh, ev- everywhere. Um, we were, we've been playing some clips too of like this whole, basically this whole pedophile groomer sex ed that's happening, sexual education that's happening in America right now. And they're teaching five-year-olds about porn. Like, and and yeah. how to talk to your five-year-old about uh, porn and self-pleasure. And what do you think that's going to do, teaching five-year-old kids about uh, masturbation and watching porn? I mean, this is outrageous that we're even having to have this conversation. Yeah, so um, this sort of sexualizing of children at a very, very young age is part of the um, drive to um, confuse children about their gender and to turn them into hedonists, basically. So it's no longer about looking for somebody to settle down with and you know have a family. It's just about pleasure seeking uh, 
as an end in itself. Yeah, it's it, it's sad, and of course, it's uh, also setting the stage for uh, pedophiles, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, normalizing. Uh, oh, you know, there, there's books that where they're <laughs> we literally play this. It's outrageous. This mom was talking to a school board about her kid brought home this this storybook, and that was part of a sex ed, and it was a a forty year old man who was teaching this little boy who was like in third grade about uh, you know blowjobs. Like, real appropriate, you know? It's like, who's benefiting from this? Who's really wanting kids to learn about this stuff? We know who. It's going to be, you know, disgusting pedophiles. Now, all of this, too... Uh, what relates to all this is is the war on beauty. We've been talking about this a long time. I think just the left in general hates anything that's beautiful because it's uh, well, it's it's rooted in things that are more traditional, right? Otherwise, you have all the piercings and the cigarettes and the the foul mouth and the the bad behavior stuff. All those things are not beautiful, right? It's also a war uh, basically on the Euro- European culture and Western civilization. We have these beautiful paintings and works of art and all of these things now are white supremacists, right? And we have, they, they must be dismantled and, and destroyed and crushed. So let's talk about the the attack on real beauty, as I say, in the West, uh, specifically female beauty and how it's bringing about these massive shifts. Yeah, so what they're doing is they're trying to devalue female beauty. Uh, I give an example in my book about the grid girls. So these are the hot babes that show up at the car races and, you know, they're dressed in nice outfits and they're definitely eye candy in every sense of the word and um they're there because you know guys like seeing attractive ladies along with the uh the race um and the bizarre thing that happened is they decided out of the blue just a couple years ago that um grid girls were no longer appropriate whatever that means um so they're essentially saying forget about the wishes of our fans we don't care what they want to see we're going to be politically correct and we're not going to have these girls around anymore when you look at the long-term implications of this um not only is it putting uh these girls out of a job and let's face it it's hard work staying in shape and looking good um and these girls are probably at the gym six hours a day they're very careful about what they eat. They're on a strict diet. Uh, they're always working out. And now they've got one less avenue to monetize that. So what's going to happen with her? Is she going to get into OnlyFans? Is she going to get onto a glamour photography site? Uh, is she going to become a call girl? She's got to go somewhere else. But what they've done is they've given her one less venue where she can... Um, uh, capitalize on the way she looks and her roommate who sits on the couch all day and eats donuts is now equally likely to get on the cover of sports illustrated so why should she bother staying in shape yeah this whole fat acceptance movement and and yeah it's a war on everything healthy and natural and again this plays into the war on uh, the sexes specifically in the west which is targeting birth rates right if you can make mm-hmm. women all just become uh, fat and not care about themselves anymore not groom not feel they need to impress to to win over a guy anymore or keep a guy guess what's going happen there's going to be less marriages and uh, less babies and i think at the end of the day that's what it's what it's about right less babies yeah it is i mean let's face it guys are visual and that's what sets everything in motion you know you see a hot looking girl you pursue 
Uh, fewer hot-looking girls, fewer opportunities to pursue. That means uh, fewer pair bonds and fewer families. Now, I know that you left your country, right? Uh, you went to a more traditional country. And I know some guys are thinking about that in, in order to find women, to find more traditional women. Now, I feel that a lot of people need to flee some of these uh, liberal cesspits, <laughs> toilet <laughs> cities, and go to where the conservative women are in the countryside or different red states or, you know, because there's still a lot of good women. You just have to put some effort into finding them and where they are and where they congregate. And I know it's getting harder and harder for men to do that. So some are just leaving these liberal countries and trying to go to greener pastures. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Is, is that a good option for men? I think it's a great option. Uh, in fact, there was a famous uh, World War II commander. Uh, his name escapes me right now. But he said that when hunting ducks, one must go where the ducks are. And uh, I think that's a great philosophy to adopt, um, especially in this day and age. I remember the first time I took a trip to South America, and um, I was on vacation for a couple of weeks, and it only took a few days to make me realize that um, not every country is the same as Canada. There are places in this world where femininity is still valued. It was a real wake-up call. And I would definitely encourage guys to, you know, at least take a vacation somewhere that you're interested in and check it out. Because if you're not um, finding what you want on your home turf, there's no reason to stay there. Yeah, you have to move. You have to be more uh, proactive to try and get a lady. Now, what about obstacles yeah. as far as you move to a new country? You know, I, I did that as well for a, a time, right? I married a Swedish man, but, you know, it's dating a foreigner. It's a new language. A lot of people find that uh, to be overwhelming. And how receptive is the, the culture, for instance, that you're in? How do women feel about dating a foreigner? It's a little different here in uh, Europe, uh, depending on where you are. I would say that... Um, South America has the advantage of openness. There's more of a tradition there of uh, gringos going down to meet girls. And um, it's a totally different mindset, too. I mean, it's a very warm culture in South America. The people are very friendly and open. In East Europe, it's still more feminine than the West. But on the other hand, it's uh, a much more reserved culture. And um, depending on your own personality and your preferences, you may find that South America or Eastern Europe is good for you, or you might even find Asia is better. It really depends on the person. In terms of language, uh, one benefit that uh, we Anglophones have is that um, it's not that hard to learn Spanish. In fact, I would say Spanish of all the foreign languages is probably the easiest to learn if English is your first language. And not far behind that is Tagalog, um, spoken in the Philippines, which has a lot of Spanish in it. So that's definitely a consideration. But I would say start taking those language courses. I've been around South America, too, in Argentina. There's a lot of Europeans and there's the Germans down there. Uh, people think that 
Europeans aren't down there, but there's plenty of them actually in uh, South America. I found Argentina very beautiful. Good steak, good wine, mm-hmm. <laughs> good people. Yep. I like that they uh, siesta during the day, <laughs> take naps <laughs> during the day, and then they're they're up pretty late at night. Yeah, I mean, I'm Eastern European. I know also in Sweden, uh, lots of other European countries, they can be more reserved. It takes a little bit to get in there. You know, if you don't know them from something like church or work or other friends, it could be a little more difficult. But then once you get in there, they're very open and then you could meet lots of people. I don't recommend going to uh, Asian countries, though. Not for the uh, not for the white boy listeners. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, you know, you gotta you gotta keep it in your genes. I I I de- definitely don't. <laughs> I think you might know that about me already, but uh, I'm sure there's plenty of very nice Asian ladies, and we do have some uh, people <laughs> that are in mixed marriages. But I definitely don't recommend that. I think if you wanna if you're a European man and you want a traditional woman, it's good to to keep it in your roots, uh, keep it in in your race. I think there's other complications that can arise. Uh, when you marry outside of your race, as I've seen seen many times before. Uh, now, what are your thoughts on MegTow? Because I know a lot of the MegTow guys, too, they're like, screw it, I'm going to Asia. You know, I, I have some issues with some of those guys because I feel like they're just, they're not trying hard enough. There's there's lots of women that you can pull from. Uh, I've, I've seen that some of those guys can have some uh, issues that they need to attend to within themselves as well. But what are your mm. thoughts? I think that uh, MGTOW is a really extreme uh, sort of reaction, and in most cases, it's probably not justified. Before you go MGTOW, I think you should really try to um, look at other countries, you know, like the ones we've been talking about, and see if you can find a comfort level somewhere else. I just get the feeling that a lot of these guys are jumping the gun, and they're they're sort of concluding prematurely that. Um, because I can't find a girl here in my home country, it's going to be the same everywhere else. And that's absolutely absolutely not true. Plus, I think you let uh, those that are behind this whole plan of the war on the sexes, specifically in the West, you let them win. You just get, okay, that's it. I don't, I'm not going to have a woman. I just, I'm going to go my own way. I'm not going to have any children. That's it. I just give up. That's just very defeatist. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that's very. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's defeatist. And also it's denying a basic part of your nature. Yeah. You know, as long as you're attracted to girls, that is something that you should be trying to do something about and meet your goal. And Sure, it may not happen right away. It may be very, very difficult, but see it as a challenge and, you know, try in a different country and see if that works before you give up. Absolutely. Now let's connect the dots because obviously something has been instigating this war on us in the West. Uh, We like to talk about this all the time, that there's been a hand that's been guiding these feminists that has been funding a lot of these revolutions uh, in the hopes of reengineering society uh, for the purpose of what and by whom. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Right. So another acronym that I use in my book is the SE, which stands for social engineer. And um, for about the last hundred years or so, social engineers have been quietly behind the scenes, um, not only uh, doing experiments and figuring out human psychology and sociology, but taking these findings and um, giving them to their masters. And All of the um, events that we've seen, I contend, are not random chance. It was all planned and premeditated. 
And that's really the main point of my book is that um, feminism was not some grassroots organic thing that just, you know, emerged on its own. It was all planned and premeditated. And the real smoking gun is uh, an interview excerpt, um, which I include in the book with um, Nicholas Rockefeller. And he was interviewed by Aaron Rousseau, a independent filmmaker. And Rousseau asked him uh, about feminism. And um, so Rockefeller said, what do you think feminism is about? Rousseau answered, uh, well, it's about equal rights. And um, Rockefeller said, you're an idiot. Aaron, what do you think women's liberation was about? And uh, I said, I had pretty conventional thinking about it at that point. I said, I think it's about women having the right to work, getting equal pay with men, just like they won the right to vote. You know, and he started to laugh. He said, you're an idiot. And I said, why am I an idiot? He said, you want me, let me tell you what that was about. We, the Rockefellers, funded that. We funded Women's Lib, you know. And we're the ones who got all over the newspapers and television, the Rockefeller Foundation. He says, and you want to know why? He says, there were two primary reasons. And they were, one reason was we couldn't tax half the population before Women's Lib. And the second reason was now we get the kids in school at an early age. We can indoctrinate the kids how to think. It breaks up their family. The, the kids start looking at the state as the family, as the school, as the officials, as their family, not as the parents teaching them. And so those are the two primary reasons for women's love, which, which I thought up to that point was a noble thing. You know, when I saw their intentions behind it, where they were coming from when they created it, the thought of it, I saw, I saw the evil behind what I thought was a noble adventure. And break up the family unit. Get the children under the control of the state. They've succeeded in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously yeah. not, not fully. That's why they're trying to do it in all these other ways as well. But battling against the sexes is a huge thing. If you can break up that family unit and create these divisions, it will cause society to suffer, as you've detailed. And there's also the Karl Marx, Freud, Frankfurt School uh, pipeline that fits into this as well, right? Yeah, there is. So um, feminism can be thought of as gender Marxism. So what Marx did is he made up this uh, fiction that the classes are at war with each other. And he was talking about economic classes. So you've got the worker bees on the one hand, and then the capitalist oppressors who own all the factories and the means of production. And he realized that by setting these two groups against each other, he could employ the classic divide and conquer strategy. And when you do that, you've got people fighting each other and you're weakening the fabric of society, which makes it very easy to have a revolution. And guess that's what they did. Now, when you apply that to genders, you're simply replacing the workers and the capitalist oppressors with MBBs and FBBs. And you're pitting the genders against each other with the same outcome, which is that they think they're each other's enemy. And in fact, they're not enemies, as I keep you know, stating in my book, they're complementary halves of a whole. And it's only through all this propaganda and brainwashing that we've been convinced otherwise. 
That's right. Now, what do you think the end goal is? Because it fits perfectly with so many different agendas. Agenda 21, well, Agenda 2030, which is the new sustainable goals of basically <laughs> depopulation, et cetera, et cetera. Also, I think a war against the West. They they don't want uh, any more white people <laughs> to be born, right? So what do you think uh, the end goal really is? And and also, do you think it the goal is for it to spread to other countries as well after the West? Yeah, so I, I talk a little bit in the book about the psychology of um, very, very wealthy people. And uh, these oligarchs have been around for centuries, and it was only probably in the last century or so that they really got together and organized. There was a guy called Cecil Rhodes, who was a mining magnate, and he decided to start an oligarchs club, if you will, and get these people together to protect their interests. Their biggest fear was losing their wealth and power, and they saw as the greatest threat to this um, overpopulation, as you mentioned. So they set about um, different strategies to ensure that the population could be limited or even curtailed, and this was, again, all to protect their existing positions and their wealth and their power. And if you look at feminism through this lens, it all makes perfect sense because the ultimate end of it is fewer pair bonds, fewer families, fewer children, depopulation. Absolutely. And what to me, it's like, why hit the West first when we're the ones already not having the kids? Well, it's probably because of the year, years of feminism, but why not target places like Africa? Uh, or is that going to be yeah. on the table? Or is it just because we have access to technology and the TV shows and the movies and the programming? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think um, the media are a critical asset in the oligarch's portfolio. And because TV is essentially a Western phenomenon, I mean, it, it originated in, in North America, um, they have leveraged that to spread it over the rest of the world. So now you've got American TV being beamed into every household uh, globally, right? And a lot of that uh, that you watch on TV is total propaganda. You know, um, I talk about this old TV show called The Avengers, and it was the original girl power figure. It was Emma Peel, who was this secret agent um, dressed in a, a leather cat suit, and she went around beating up 200 pound guys. And that was the first time viewers got to see this. And they all tuned in every week to uh, watch them appeal. And after that, we had, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We had La Femme Nikita. The list goes on and on. But TV was what really got it started. Good old TV. <laughs> yep. So I have to throw it out the window and cancel the Netflix. Oh, my gosh. I think Russia is going to be in a good place uh, now because uh, Pornhub is uh, banning Russia. Netflix is banning Russia. I think uh, Disney, yeah. like, oh, poor Russia, right? They'll be in a much better place. Now, let's talk about the UK anthropologist Michael Woodley, and he refers to feminists, homosexuals, and atheists as these spiteful mute mutants. Uh, we hear this term a lot. Uh, let's get into that because their what is it their life strategy is basically unnatural isn't that what he said he did and um i have to confess i, I laughed out loud when i saw that phrase spiteful mutant mm -hmm. because i just thought of these um blue-haired feminists and oh yeah and they're ranting and raving and i thought yep 
that's what they are. And now the tranny's on top of it. Just, yeah, exactly. Wow. But um, I think that he might be being a little bit overly optimistic. And the reason I say that is that even though you could argue that, well, a feminist is less likely to form a pair bond in a family, it doesn't really matter if she falls out of the reproductive race, because every time a kid is born and put in school and indoctrinated into the feminist uh, system that we have, he or she automatically becomes a de facto feminist. You know, even in childhood, they're already being feminized. Uh, the boys are, the girls are being masculinized. They're being sexualized, as you said earlier. So it all starts um, at a very early age and they get it in school, they get it at work, they get it everywhere. Now, why are these mutants so spiteful? Is it because, <laughs> because they know that they're the unnatural ones or, or uh, freakish and so they want to take everyone else down with them or force their way? What is it? I think that's probably a big part of it. You know, they may have come to a point in their lives where they realize that they don't fit the mold uh, that we consider traditional masculine or feminine, and they've decided to, you know, get their revenge. And what happens is they're weaponized by the powers that be because it serves uh, their interests. So they become useful idiots in a sense. And now feminism seems like we don't talk about that as much because now it's about trans rights, right? It's uh, LGBTQ-P. Uh, There's a big push for trans. What do you think the end game is? I mean, we, we like to say transhumanism. I think ultimately that's what it is, right? <laughs> Having this kind of hermaphroditic kind of human being or one that just has no genitals and won't procreate at all that just will kind of sit in the pod in a vr set and just not really have any impulses that can be easily controlled but what do you think this push for trans yeah so um if uh, you remember the novel brave new world uh what ended up happening in that particular future is they essentially took reproductive rights away from ordinary people like you and me and they put it in the hands of a select few. And I think a big part of the, um, the trans movement is exactly that. So it's not only about depopulation, it's also about um, taking away the right to reproduce because the, um, the oligarchs that, that want to shape society according to their own whims, not only want to regulate the level of population, but who is doing the populating. Yeah, exactly. Total control at the end of the day. And we know how all those dystopian books and movies end. It's never in a good place, which is amazing mm -hmm. because we already see those parallels happening. We've seen, we've written about all the warnings, right? We see all the signs, and yet we're still heading down this uh, off the cliff. Now, progress. Where does it end? Are we supposed to just progress and progress and progress? <laughs> Because I don't think mm. so. I mean, isn't there a point when, okay, this is good. We, we're, we're in line with nature. We have the comforts that we need. We have to do things that make us the healthiest and, and the happiest. But that's not what we're doing now. We see basically uh, evil winning, right? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so if we talk about technological progress, um, it used to be good up until about, I would say, the 70s or 80s. Looking back, the future was a very bright place at that time. We had invented supersonic jets. Uh, we were going into space. We had all these amazing new gadgets, and it seemed like the world was, you know, becoming this utopian future 
uh, that we used to see in popular mechanics magazine back in the 30s. It was all on track. And then something strange happened. It seemed like all of that went off the rails. Um, they canceled the Concorde. They canceled the space shuttle. All of the sort of cool technology uh, that we had gotten used to, it kind of went away. And what it got replaced with was this um, focus on computer technology. And um, I found myself thinking back to the film 2001 A Space Odyssey and uh, Kubrick, the director, he sort of foretold all of this. I don't know if you remember, but in that movie, oh, yeah. they had these beautiful, beautiful uh, shots of, you know, spacecraft in motion set to the music of Strauss. And mm -hmm. it was like this ballet in space, it, this, this marvel of technology, like, look at what we've created. We've conquered the heavens and, and we have these amazing machines that are helping us explore these new uh, uncharted vistas. And then what did he have? He had HAL 9000, the computer. And what was HAL? It was the evil computer. Yeah. <laughs> the, the original evil computer. And when I look at the way technology has sort of moved forward in the last 50 years or so, it's been towards HAL 9000. Mm -hmm. He's everywhere now, watching you, watching your every move, where you go, what you do. And if he doesn't like what he sees, he's going to shut down your bank account. It's interesting how this progress, it just keeps progressing and progressing. As, and as we know, it's progressively worse. It, at the end of the day, it does turn out to be evil, <laughs> you know, and, and people have theorized there's uh, cycles of that in, in, in parallels of that in other times in history, uh, that we can't avoid the cycle of progress. And then we basically destroy ourselves and then we collapse and then we do it again, uh, like the Atlantis myth or you have Egypt. Uh, so perhaps Rome. So perhaps, the, you know, that's where we're heading again and it feels like it feels like that that's what's happening so what do you think is a good strategy moving forward because i feel uh, most of the world is really with us against a lot of this liberal progressive kind of west like if you talk to a lot of people in in, in other countries and even non-european countries they can see through this stuff although this frankfurt schoolian uh, thought is starting to infect the globe uh, especially with the tv and all that but what's a good strategy moving forward to combat a lot of this garbage coming at us well, if, um, if I was going to give advice to parents who have children, I would say um, homeschooling is definitely a good way to go. The education system has gone so far downhill uh, that it's, it's hardly worth the bother um, sending your kids. And in fact, you're doing them a disservice in many ways if you do send them to school. Uh, they're just being sexualized at far too young an age. They're being encouraged to you know, change their gender even. And they're being taught a lot of uh, nonsense and, and feminist propaganda. So try to keep them out of school and, um, you know, set an example. If you have a, a husband and a wife who love and respect each other, that is probably the best advertisement that 
that you can give your kids. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's all how you raise your kids and we can undo a lot of this damage. I see it with a lot of the kids that are homeschooled. None of this is affecting them and they're going on to get married and they're going to have lots of kids and it's all about the parenting and arming your children to be able to recognize what that propaganda is, teach them why it's harmful, not just say don't watch that, that's bad, but uh, people like us, we're equipped to see, we know what the lies are, we know what the ultimate agenda is and so we can uh, put Put that armor of truth on our children and they can grow up and, and change the world because ultimately I think a lot of these kids that are on these hormone blockers and just be getting destroyed by these progressive values, uh, a lot of them aren't going to procreate. It won't be their children that inherit the earth and some of these kids I worry like a 15 they're going to be dead. You know, with with the drugs yeah. and the degeneracy, and now you've got the you know like pedophiles, and just they're just open to all this crazy abuse, and we have all these mental uh, health problems now more than ever, and suicide, and so I, it's not going to end well for a lot of those people, unfortunately. So that's another reason why it's important for good people to have kids, and that's why <laughs> we need the male and female balance, and good you know husbands and wives, and and the strong family unit, and that is why they war against it because. The family unit really is the the armor that can protect you from all of this garbage. Well, I appreciate your time today, and uh, your book is is a lot of fun to read. So let people know where they can get this book. Yep. So it's called The Big Fake: How Killing the Sexes Is Killing the West, and it's available on Amazon. And any more books coming up, or is this going to be it for you? Um, nothing in the pipeline right now, but uh, I wouldn't rule it out for the future. Well, thank you so much. It's been great having you and uh, hearing a little bit of your perspective and being introduced to your work. So thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Lana. That's it for now. Thank you to our members and donors who make what we do possible. We cannot do it without you. We may be banned on all the big platforms, but we're hardly on the dark corners of the internet, as they say. We are in the light crevices shining brightly. For more information and links, head over to redice.tv or redicemembers.com. That's it for now. Love you all. See you on the next one. Yeah.